Get lit. Get lit, listeners. Very special beginning. John is going to audition right now, live, a few days ago, for your listening pleasure to do the introduction to this podcast. John, are you ready? I'm ready. You think you got what it takes? I got it. Okay, here we go. Good luck. Thank you for coming in um, whenever you're ready. Thank you. Get Lit listeners, hello, and welcome to another week of Get Lit. I am your co-host, John Stricker, here with the main host, Steph Spars. That's what I got. It was a little creepy. (laughs) (laughs) All right, folks, uh, feel free to weigh in if you enjoyed that for whatever reason. Um, I can recommend some great therapists to go see. Or, you know, just let us know. (laughs) And uh, we'll go back to usual next week. Don't worry. You're so supportive. Thank you. Always. I'm only here here to look out for your professional Mm, goals. I appreciate it. Excellent. Um, So, welcome to Get Lit, the literary podcast where we, me, Steph, Spars, and... John Stricker. Take a look at famous works of literature and the people who wrote them. This week, John was bribed with... Um, an Italian dinner. It, it was incredible. I personally found it quite pedestrian and, and very mediocre. That's being nice. <laughs> but that's okay. Um, because I'll make up for it. Um, viewers will be pleased to know that at every one of our recording sessions, um, our official mascot, Pokey the Chinchilla, is present. Um, and John can give him some treats. He loves Cheerios and a dust bath to make up for the fact that the Italian food was literally disgusting. Um, (laughs) (laughs) so that's the bribe. Um, So the last update that we had for you guys is about the t-shirts, which we're very excited to get out over the weekend. I put out um, a Google form to really gather the kind of final pieces of interest that we need. Uh, Since we've had enough folks who've said, yes, I want one, um, we now want to get those specifics in. Um, And once we get those specifics from those individuals, we'll reach out about payment, um, but not until we kind of hear back. So there's a couple more days we're trying to get kind of one cohesive order submitted. So a couple more days to get your stuff in. and let us know if you'd like a t-shirt. So please feel free to fill that out. It's available on our website and all the social media platforms that we have. Um, Don't worry, Mom, I emailed it to you already. Um, (laughs) So if you've got questions or comments about that, please feel free to reach out. But that's kind of our last exciting bit of news. This week, we get to hear about another amazing, totally badass woman. Stephanie, language. (laughs) All right, um, full disclosure, John does not listen to the podcast beyond the recordings that we do of it. And um, what he doesn't know is that I go back after and I edit out any expletives that occur with a little noise. So here you go, John. Uh, the, the, the listeners wouldn't have heard that. Today I learned. Thank you. Today we learned. Yes. Um, and you're going to do some more learning because you're going to hear about Susanna Rawson, who's really amazing, America's number one best, first best-selling author. Um, so we'll hear a little bit about her today, which I think will be super fun. Let's start uh, at her very beginning, which also coincides with the very beginning of the modern United States of America. So Susanna Haswell was born in Portsmouth, England, actually. So we have another kind of instance of she's like considered an American author and she spends a lot of time in America, but she's technically born in England um, in 1762. 
Her father is the Royal Navy Lieutenant William Haswell, and his first wife, Susanna Musgrave, dies a few days after Susanna's birth, which oh. is going to come back later, so keep that away. Um, but is also very common at the time. Women would get fevers and that sort of thing, and it would kill them a couple days after babies were born. So um, her father goes ahead and um, is stationed in Boston, you know, to make sure the rebellious colonists and colonies were doing what England said they would do. Mm. Um, so he winds up getting remarried to an American woman, or, you know, Ameri- quote unquote, um, Rachel Woodward, um, and starts a second family. He has two sons with her. And um, he was then sent and appointed as a Boston customs officer. So he was sent back to England. They were like, just kidding, go back. We want you to be a customs officer. And he's like, fine. So he brings his daughter and his servant with him, as you do, back over to Massachusetts. <laughs> so, bummer. Um, they arrive in January of 1767. So Susanna's about four years old at this point. Um, and the ship runs aground on what is now Lovell's Island, which is a, a little island in Boston Harbor. And um, so they crash the boat and um, the crew and the passengers get rescued. So that's good. But that's yeah. kind of how Susanna starts her American adventure. Yeah, that's traumatic. Probably. I mean, what do you remember? when? I, I guess trauma informed as your four is like a big thing. So she gets in a shipwreck, and she's fine, though. Um, So they live in Nantasket, um, and she grows up there. This lawyer, statesman, James Otis, who I actually don't know anything about. I don't know if he's important in American history, but... We'll Google that. Oh, yeah. What? No, we don't... I don't care. But don't you want to know? Not really. Okay. <laughs> he didn't write anything. He didn't write okay. a book, so I don't really okay. care. Outside of the scope of hashtag get, get lit. Yeah, so John can do research on James Otis, who's probably like a white founder that you're interested in. A little bit, yeah. yeah. Okay, great. So John will take James Otis, and he will report back next week. So James Otis, lawyer, statesman, takes an interest in Susanna's education and wants her to get one. Um, he's the friend of the families, and so he educates her. He teaches her how to read and all kinds of stuff like that. Um, And so she grows up with all the classics um, and really, really enjoys reading. Her education, however, is disrupted by the American Revolution. Um, Her dad was very stubborn and very much supported England, so he gets placed under house arrest. And then the family moves inland um, into Abington, Massachusetts, and... um, Then in 1778, her father gets really sick, and so they do a prisoner exchange with the American, the colonist government, Um, and so then the family is sent to Nova Scotia, and then to England uh, back, so they wouldn't resist the colonist forces. So Susanna, like, grows up in the States, or what would become the States, and then gets sent back to England for a while. Um, the American property that Susanna's grandfather owned had to be sold to support the family over in England. So they kind of lose all of their holdings in America for now. Um, so during this time, um, Susanna is growing up and, um, she works as a governess 
And um, she's the governess and, and teaches the children of the Duchess of Devonshire um, and starts to write her own work. So this is where, um, I guess, her career starts to pick off. She writes her first work, a two-volume novel called Victoria, um, and that's published in 1786. And then in that same year, this was a big year for her, October 17th, she marries William Rawson, becomes Susanna Rawson. Um, and William is a hardware merchant. Um, who has a theatrical family. Wait, theatrical as in they are part of the theater, or theatrical as in there's a lot of drama? (laughs) There's dramatic. No, um, maybe both. I don't know. But uh, theatrical in the career sense. Oh, I see. Yes. Um, He was, uh, so he's also a Royal Horse Guards trumpeter as well. So he has a lot of skills. <laughs> Casually. I don't know what a royal horse guard trumpeter is. Not even a little bit. I hope he plays music for horses. I don't think that's <laughs> what that is. But wouldn't that be nice if he just... Got... Well, honestly, if I were a horse, I wouldn't really want a trumpet to be playing. I, as a human, I don't really want a trumpet to be playing. Sorry to my students. Um, I, I have a student named Eileen who plays the trumpet. I don't... I love listening to your concerts, um, <laughs> but I don't know that I need an individual trumpet to serenade me when Especially I'm a horse. Especially if you were a horse, yeah. Right, that's, that's, see, that's the big qualifier. <laughs> okay, so 1788, uh, over the next two years, she publishes The Inquisitor, or The Invisible Rambler, um, which is a three-volume set, so like people are really into reading really long stuff, which is funny, I can't even get students to read like a short story. Um, That's because TV. Yeah. Any number of any we could any number of things we could attribute to reduced attention spans. I'm just saying people are looking to literature and like things to read as like entertainment. So the longer Mm -hmm. it is, it's like living with characters for a longer period of time. I get it. I get it. And then things like, you know, like when a season on a TV show like falls apart. Yeah, it goes on a little too long. Oh, yeah. I wonder if this was that case. They were like, oh, God, there's a third volume. Oh, it should have been a two volume series. (laughs) I can't even believe it. Um, So, all right. In 1791, this is where things really take off. Um, Susanna publishes a novel called Charlotte, A Tale of Truth. And in England, it's not really well-received. Like, it does fine, but it doesn't do great. Um, And she reissues it in America as Charlotte Temple. And boom, it becomes the nation's first best-selling novel, which is very cool. That's awesome. Um, So much so. Okay, I tried to do some fun math because I was like, oh, this is really cool. So the 25,000 copies is the first run, and it sells out within a couple years, which is really good, I guess. Um, So I tried to do the math to be like, ooh, how many people in America had read Charlotte Temple? Um, And at the time, um, in the 1790s, the population of the United States was about 4 million, according to the internet. And so I was like, ooh, how many people is that? So it turns out one in every 160 people had read her book. Did that count the population of slaves, I have though? no idea. So that's, that'd be interesting, though, because that's like, then it would be like one in 60 people. Yeah, I don't know. So I was like, oh, isn't that impressive? And then I did the math, and I was like, eh. That's still pretty impressive. It's still very cool. She's impressive, and I'm very impressed. So the story was allegedly, and some people believe that it was based on Charlotte Stanley's life, and she was a real-life Manhattan resident in the 18th century. Um, There's no proof that that's the case, uh, that kind of thing. So, But people, I think, just liked the idea that it was based on her. Um, So it's, it's 
a very popular story, but pretty controversial because there's seduction, um, remorse, a baby comes along, that kind of thing. Um, and so because of this, it was pretty controversial and it was also very short. So people didn't consider it like a novel, which I think is funny. I don't, I'm assuming the term novella hadn't really been coined at that point. Mm. Um, cause they were like, this is not seven volumes. What are we reading? Is this even a book? Um, so it doesn't have very many pages. So people are like, is this even a novel? However, it runs through 200 different editions um, since its publication, which is incredible. Um, and I wrote down some interesting facts, and this is actually cool. I actually have firsthand knowledge of one of these facts. So Charlotte Temple was adapted into three different plays in America hmm. um, when it first came out because people liked the story so much. Unfortunately, only one of those three manuscripts, I think, is in existence today. Um, people made wax figures of the characters and sent them on tour. So you know how there's like the um, wax museums? Yeah. So she like was the original wax museum. Like Whoa. they would send out these wax figures that went on tour. Um, and then at some point, this is the most interesting one in my opinion. Um, before 1855, somebody added a gravestone in the Trinity Church in Lower Manhattan in New York City's graveyard that says Charlotte Temple. Um, Charlotte Temple is, is a fictional character. She's not real. But someone put a gravestone and people would come in droves to see the poor Charlotte Temple's grave and like leave tokens of affection and like cry at her grave. And she wasn't even real. Wow. So I went to go see her grave when I was in New York last. Um, so I'll post the pictures on social media. Um, it's actually right, right around the corner from Alexander Hamilton's grave. So you can go <laughs> nice. see that. Um, I didn't really care about that one. I was like, where's Charlotte Temple? Um, so you can go see Charlotte Temple's grave. And they've done some research to try to figure out. They were like, oh, is this on top of someone? Was it a joke? Um, but there's nothing under it. Huh. They have not uncovered anybody beneath the like tombstone thing. So Trinity Church just, just wanted more tourists. I, I mean, well, they did a good job because... I'm going to see it today. No other people. Okay. Um, and so Charlotte Temple was the most popular book in America until Uncle Tom's Cabin came out. So like it held its space for a long time. Um, and one of the things that when I was reading some criticism of the book, the reason why it was so popular was that everybody could connect with in some way with this poor immigrant girl no fortune brings her experiences to America. So it was actually one of the first books that lots of people could connect to people of color, women, not, you know, everybody had something they could get at. And this is what I think is sort of interesting about the classics, quote unquote, you know, we've got canon that is relatively limited. Um, that's how I feel about so many of the great works of literature that we read in school. Um, so it's a really interesting debate to have with people because, you know, we say like, oh, there's nothing relatable about The Great Gatsby. There's nothing relatable about Charlotte Temple. Um, but I think in its essence, these are characters who are suffering and they are sad. And who hasn't had an experience that's made them feel that way? And so when people say they're not relevant anymore, I think in the core of human essence, they are. Right. There's the, the, the human thread still follows through all of those stories. Right. So, I don't know. That was just something that I found kind of interesting. So, um, 
They're in America. She's writing. She's doing fine. Unfortunately, her husband William's hardware store business fails, and then his father dies in 1791, and um, Susanna takes in his orphan sister, whose actual name is Charlotte, um, which is kind of funny. Um, So the three of them are like, oh, God, what do we do? Oh, I know. We need new jobs. Let's start acting. So they literally <laughs> become professional actors. Um, In a time of financial crisis, they, they, they turn to turn acting. They turn to theater. Okay, very Exactly good. right. Exactly right. Um, what a world. That's where the money is. That's where the money is. So um, William becomes a company member of the Theater Royale the con- in the Convent Garden. Um, Covent Garden, excuse me. And Susanna joins the Theater Royale Edinburgh. And in 1793, they get recruited um, by a Philadelphia theater company. And so they go back over to the United States. So this is where Susanna, she stays here for the rest of her life in in the United States. Um, Or the colony is whatever we're calling them at this point. So in the next three years... In 1793, it's the United States. Is it the the, the United States? Is that the, the term that we decided? All 13 of them. Good for us. United States of America. By by mm-hmm. 1793, we're no law. We don't have the Articles of Confederation anymore. We're actually mm-hmm. with the Articles of Constitution. Good for us. Not really. Terrible founding of a country. Happy Fourth of July. <laughs> Happy colonization as well. <laughs> <laughs> Anywho, um, so Susanna, over the next three years, they're living in Philadelphia. She writes a novel. She writes an opera. She writes a musical farce about the Whiskey Rebellion. It's called The Volunteers. I don't know if you can find the script, but that would be kind of funny. Yeah. Um, she writes a poetic address to American troops and then lots of songs. She also performs 57 different roles on the stages across the seasons that she's there, which is pretty incredible. Wow. So she's doing fine. Um, it really encouraged kind of the growth of the performing arts in the United States, um, which I think is pretty cool. And, uh, so then in 1796, she reconnects with an old director that she'd worked with, a guy named John Brown Williamson. Great. Um, and he takes over the Federal Street Theater, which is in Boston. So they relocate there to, you know, Susanna grew up there. We like this guy who works there. And, um, all of my fans are in Boston. So she actually moves closer for that reason. Um, the theater, unfortunately, goes bankrupt. Mm. And um, they do a couple more performances, I think, as like a courtesy. And then um, William tries to get a different job with a Boston merchant. That doesn't work out so well because he gets imprisoned for employer's debt. But he oh. then gets hired at a Boston custom house, and that's his career for the rest of his life. So that's that's all that happens to him. Honestly, he doesn't really matter because his wife is really cool. Uh, so um, Susanna leaves her theater career, mm-hmm. you know, and um, she starts the first female academy in Boston. This is 1797, and it's called Miss Rawson's Academy for Young Ladies, uh, which is a delightful name. And uh, it grows. She becomes very, very successful at this, is very passionate about women's education and educational access. So the school moved several times because she wanted a more rural setting, um, but also the enrollment was increasing rapidly. So she moved the school to Medford and then Newton, but then returns ultimately to Boston in 1809. So she's a leader um, 
She's also a female geographer. And this, I didn't know, this was very cool. She publishes uh, textbooks as well for her school because she was dissatisfied with the quality of the textbooks that were in circulation at the time. Wow. So she actually writes her own book on geography, but it was human geography. Um, it's called Rawson's Abridgment of Universal Geography. Um, and this includes information about like women around different cultures of the world, religions, financial and social structures. Um, so she really talks about human geography very heavily and also starts to condemn slavery. So all of this is coming out in her textbooks. Um, so I would imagine that the girls at her school got a very thorough liberal education um, in that way. Wow. Yeah, very controversial, right? Yeah. So they're not only learning traditional ladies' work, like uh, sewing and whatever else they were dancing. I don't know, um, but they were also learning mathematics and science and geography and all kinds of you know male subjects like that. So the, she manages the school until 1822. Um, and hundreds of girls go through the program and that kind of thing. She continues to write um, and contributes to the Boston Weekly Magazine. She also makes her own dictionary because what else are you going to do on your Saturdays? Um, <laughs> so all of this work helps her contribute because she's also a very nice person. And she takes in a lot of children, just like some random children, because she and her husband have no children. So she takes in her husband's illegitimate son. Whoa. And then the she takes in a girl named Frances Maria Mills, who's the orphan daughter of an actor that they knew. And then she also takes in Susanna Rawson Johnston, who's her niece, um, and she hosts a widow and daughters of her half-brother, Robert Haswell, who'd been lost at sea in 1801. Oh, my gosh. So she, like, <laughs> has all of these people that also she's supporting. Also a boarding house. Basically yeah. also running a boarding house. Um, she also founds a charity and runs a charity for widows and fatherless people, which is, again, amazing. So in 1822, she passes the operation on to her adopted daughters. Um, her health is failing. She winds up dying um, two years later on March 2nd in 1824. Um, and over the course of her career, she's written 10 novels, six theatrical works, two volumes of poetry, a lot of songs, and six textbooks. Um, no big deal. Uh, she <laughs> winds up getting buried um, in a family vault um, and St. Matthew's Church in South Boston, but the church was demolished in 1866, and so they moved her remains to the Mount Hope Cemetery. Um, just after her death, the sequel to Charlotte Temple called Charlotte's Daughter, or The Three Orphans, which is usually published in the United States now as a novel called Lucy Temple, mm. gets published. Um, and I found this quote, um, in 1870, there's a memoir written called A Memoir of Mrs. Susanna Rawson. Um, and the quote that I liked and pulled was, Miss Susanna Rawson was one of the most remarkable women of her day. Her life is as romantic as any creation of her gifted pen and is a beautiful illustration of the potency of a large glowing heart and a determined will to rise superior to the circumstances and achieve success. Um, I like that. Isn't that lovely? I mean, we would all wish for a life that would, like, receive such a, a eulogy. Right? And, like, you know, we don't write like this anymore, obviously, but I, I think in its essence kind of illustrates the sort of um, well-rounded, you know, she was, she was not only an amazing woman, 
a very talented writer, educator, actor, whatever. But she was also a kind person. She was like legitimately a good person. Yeah. Um, so she kind of actually, as I was doing this research, I was like, this kind of actually reminds me a lot of um, Kate Chopin when we were doing her. And kind of the, the way that people thought about her as this wonderful, warm person, hostess, etc. Um, who also wrote amazing novels and changed the face of American history. So um, every time I do one of these about, I, I think, a female author who just sort of like took it and did it all at the time, uh, I just get really inspired. I think she's really incredible. Um, so this was fun because I'd read Charlotte Temple in college and knew a little bit about the cool like myth around the grave, but that was about it. And then when I started doing this research, I was like, this is what I like. Aspire. You know, I would love to be an educator, an actress, a, you know, author and everything like that. And she was able to do it all. So I, I, I was very excited to learn more about her. It's a Renaissance woman. Right? Truly at the time. We focus on all the like men who did the amazing things that they did at the founding of the, you know, the colonies and that kind of thing. But it's cool to also reflect on women too. And I think Abigail Adams, I don't know much about her, but feels like she fits in this vein of just like extraordinary women. Like at the time. She's like and well honestly just like extraordinary people. Yeah. She's one of those extraordinary people that changed the face of history as we know it. Which I think is really cool. So, Susanna Rossin for you. But next week, we'll have another author to share with you guys. Feel free to reach out to us again with any feedback that you have. Um, we're enjoying this. We're getting feedback that indicates that other people are, or at least my mom's bribery is working. So we're totally happy to take that. And um, we will see you guys again next week. So thank you, as always, for keeping it lit. <laughs>